When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Hal Kos and I'm a host here at New Books in Poetry. Today I'm very excited to be speaking with poet and critic Vona Grork about her new book, Hereafter, The Telling Life of Eleanor Hara, published a few months ago by New York University Press as part of the Glucksmann Irish Diaspora series. Hereafter is, it's quite hard to describe. That's the first thing I would say. It's a unique book. Uh, It's a quilt uh, kind of arrangement of poetry, prose and history, a sonnet sequence, a research journal and a search for life in the archives and across 11 sections which are formed from this weave of invention, citation, biography. It reclaims the life of Ellen O'Hara who in 1882 arrived at Ellis Island from Lenovo Island to begin a new story of hard graft, invention, risk and care. Uh, Vona has published eight collections of poetry and won many awards including the Hennessy Award and the Michael Hartnett Award. A Coleman Center Fellow at the New York Public Library 2018-2019. She has taught at the Center for New Writing at the University of Manchester. And I should also say she taught me at the Center for New Writing at the University of Manchester. And she is the current poet in residence at St. John's College, University of Cambridge. Hi, Vona. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Hal, and it's so nice to see you again. Um, be- between uh, now and the, the last time I saw you, there's been a few bits and pieces going on in the world, and it's great to see people on the other side, as it were. There, are, there has been a few bits and pieces going on. It's lovely, it's lovely to see you again on the other side as well. So I wanted to start um, with a list of verbs that I sort of noted down and kept track of as I was reading the book. Um, and I'm just going to read them. I'm just going to read this list to begin with. To tell, to suppose, to write, to witness, to find, to imagine, to prove, to record, to count, to recount, to haunt, to account, to correct, to grant, to conjure, to rummage, to voice, to fill in, to trawl, to project, and to work. And I noted these because as I was reading, I realized 
that you were very attentively describing the sort of movement of your weight to relating to the archive that is at the center of the book and the life of Ellen that's at the center of the book. And so what I wanted to ask really, firstly about the origins of the project, which of these verbs seem to describe the task of head of, ahead of you when, you when you went to New York, knowing that you were gonna be dropped into this archive and thinking about how the book is formed now um, as a finished article, which of these verbs speaks to to what we have? Um, yeah. Well, I would have to um, fess up from the get-go, um, Hal, and say that when I went to New York, I had not a notion of this project. I had a completely different project in mind that I was going to work on. Um, and after some time, I realized that it wasn't actually possible for me to do the first project. And that left me in a in a somewhat vexatious situation because um, obviously I, I wanted to, to use my time wisely and well at the Coleman Center in the New York Public Library. So I was at a, you know, I was at a bit of an impasse and I was thinking, right, how, how am I going to write my way out of this? And then one lunchtime, I just started thinking about my connections with New York, which were through my mother's line because she was born there and had lived with her grandmother and used to talk with great affection about her grandmother. Um, and I thought, oh, I wonder about about that woman. I wonder if there's much that I can find out about her. And then uh, I'd say within within about three weeks of that very first question, I was hooked on uh, on the project, on this idea. And I, I'm not sure I fully understood. I, I didn't have it, you know, architected, as it were, before I embarked on the research. It kind of happened organically. It happened with the question, I wonder, can I find out much about her? And then suddenly I was, you know, delving and probing. And sometimes I, I was finding absolutely nothing. And it was that failure to find that was really the genesis of the project because I thought, right, if you can't get hard facts or you can get very few hard facts, um, then how do you tell a life story? And I began to think, well, you know, you can make it up, you can write a novel and uh, people do that quite successfully. Um, or I could write a sequence of poems and, and pretend I'm her uh, and write it all in her voice. Or I could pretend that I'm a version of myself and write it as a researcher. And I could look at all the history that's that's been done, all the research about women who were like Ellen. And then I thought, well, I can do all of these things and it'll be a better book. It'll thrive off um, these distinct categories of approach um, if I can do it right. And I can come up with a kind of a new way of, of um, probing the story so that um, I'm in it. My version of Ellen is in it. I get her to talk. History is in it. Um, images are there. And between it all, I hope to arrive at, at some kind of version of a plausible story. Is it exactly Ellen's story? I don't know, because there wasn't enough information to tally her real life experience with my findings about it. But it wouldn't it, it, it certainly isn't an uncommon story in terms of the general run of experience that women like her had. So it was very important for me to be historically correct, which I suppose is the difference. If I was writing fiction, I could have put a lot of stuff in there that maybe wasn't accurate. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to have a basis, a grounding in historical fact, but I also wanted it to be more. So in terms of the second part of your question, then having written the book, um, 
what are the what are the verbs that seem to resonate more and you know it's 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 hard to say this one and not that one for me because of the the nature of the of the writing was so hybrid and was so fluid in in many ways that in fact all these verbs still seem to me to be mm-hmm. to be apt and to be useful and um, i did witness i did write i did record i also imagined i also created um, I also, you know, scrupulously trawled through many, many, many um, sets of data and, and and so on. So there was a lot of digging, but there was also a lot of um, of sort of uh, imagining and inventing and working out what's an appropriate way to tell a story that isn't your story and that you don't really own. Um, you don't own it because it's not available to you in a, in the round, but also you don't own it because it's not your life. So how do you manage all of these concerns? And I would say that all of the verbs that you have identified, I, I couldn't prioritize them. No, neither could I. That's why they're all just listed like that, because I think that really comes with the book. It's not it's not trying to smooth those different ways of approaching this material into one kind of channel or one mode of of writing and that's 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 one of the things that's amazing about the book can you just talk a bit more about the i'm really curious about the sort of the work itself like the question of accessibility so how long were you there for working on the question of ellen's life and and how does the archive operate and because there are some references to that kind of work in the book and they're quite important when they are there but i'm curious about um how also i'm just curious about kind of the turnaround like you you have a curiosity who do you ask who then sends you up this material kind of how does it work yeah yeah well i was in the 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 coleman center in nypl and um every year the coleman center offers 14 fellowships to people and so it's a it's a mix of there was two poets there in the year that i was there the, there was a, a couple of novelists. There were historians, biographers. There was a, a social scientist. There was a classicist um, and so on. So it's a real mix of people. So you're in an environment that I don't think I could have written this book even in a practical way, but also in a philosophical way if I hadn't been in that mix of people so that conversations were already drawing on different, I suppose, knowledge pools, really. Um, so th- that was... That was my my kind of starting point was this idea that um, I am able to access different kinds of information. Right. So then when uh, I, I got there at the start of September in 2018, and I suppose the, the other project that I had been working on ran aground um, in the middle of October. And then um, pretty instantly, I, I I kicked in with the Ellen project. So within a few weeks, I knew that I had the the, the parameters of of what would be a story that would make a book. So then it was a question of, right, I've got a whole load of blanks and how do I fill them in? Okay, I need to know, how did you actually get from rural South County Sligo in Ireland in 1882 to New York? Like what was the what, what was the, 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 the journey? Um, what, what vehicles did you use? Um, and I also had to answer the question, did she come in 1882? And that's the one question that I, I can't answer with any great certainty. I have found people of her name with the correct age on several different ships. And um, when it comes to that, I, there's no way of knowing which one. So you just pick one and you say, OK, well, I'm, this is what I'm doing. It would be wrong to say that was definitely her. But I, that's I, I deliberately don't do that. What I say is, right, I can't choose between them. So 
Um, I just need to pick one, but please be aware of the fact that I am just picking one almost at random. So you, you start with that and then you keep asking questions. Okay, so you get her to New York. You imagine, um, so you have facts about ships. You have facts about trains. You have facts about the circumstances of the various um, level of ticket on, on, the, on the ship and what, you know, you do actual research about that. And then you think, right, I have a sense of what it was like, but let me try and imagine what it was like. So that's where the poetry part of me kicks in. And a lot of questions that I was able to to assemble were relatively easy to answer because people have done very good research on on Irish immigrants, especially to the the cities of the eastern seaboard of the United States. so a lot of the questions were possible to answer and then some were really, really difficult to answer. Like the whole question of money was really difficult to answer. So um, Arnold Schreier had done very good good research, but it's quite old research um, about money that was sent back by Irish immigrants. But there is no place that will say this is the amount that was sent by Irish women and this is the amount that was sent by men. Um, you have to kind of extrapolate from whatever information you can get, which seems to suggest that women were able to save more than men because they worked as domestic servants. So they didn't have expenses like accommodation and uniform and travel to work. So they didn't earn very much, but what they earned, they could save. So um, you, you're kind of interpreting the information that you get. Um, and uh, nobody has said to me yet, no, you're completely wrong about that. But I wouldn't rule out somebody coming to me and saying, no, but I've been doing research in this and my findings are different to yours. Sure, sure. But that's that. That's fine. Um, I don't claim to be, um, you know, a, a, you know, to be offering an authoritative version of, of Ellen's life. So it's fine if there are holes in it, I think. And I, I think those holes are those flaws in the story are of great interest to me. And maybe that's where the poetry part comes in. But just in terms of procedure, I was in one of the great repositories of knowledge um, in the Western world. So if there were questions that I was able to ask that I I didn't have an answer to, there was somebody who worked in the Cullman Centre who would say, well, you know, maybe you should go and talk to the curator in this area, or I needed to find out about Ellen's um, son's military record. So there was somebody who was in the library who was able to help me with that. So there were lots of specific queries that there were people well placed in the library to answer for me or else they were able to direct me um, towards towards various archives or, or data sets that I could mine for myself. But um, I was very lucky to be where I was. I could not have done this book were I sitting in my cottage in in rural Sligo on my own trying to assemble the pieces together. I couldn't have done it without being situated in such a good library as as the New York Public Library. I had to have access to um, the kinds of information that would help me to ask better questions and also to be able to answer them. Yeah, and I mean, it reads almost as a kind of tribute to that infrastructure and a sort of uh to, to the to the archive but creatively so because as you've kind of mentioned the thing that then comes in the, the sonnets that then come in are also about filling in the gaps and really the sonnets to me are about the voice of ellen no it's about giving voice which is what you can't find if you look at federal records in the archive so I mean, maybe we could talk about, just to make it clear for people listening, you know, it's also a sonnet sequence, you know, what you describe as um, folk sonnets, but they're pretty precise and kind of formally uh, very kind of 
uh, neat and um, orderly on the whole. But they 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 begin often because most of the sonnets are um, speech. You know, are Ellen's voice speaking out to the reader, speaking to you often. Um, so, how early on did you know that you would need some form to, in a way, stitch? This archival journey together, and 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 how early on or late on did the did the sonnet arrive as as the form that you chose? Do you know with with writing a book of this kind, maybe with writing a book of any kind, um, certain decisions that you make are intuitive rather than you being able to parse them and say this happened for this reason. But um, when early on in the project, when I was still trying to find out um, facts about Ellen before I realised that there were very few available to me. And there are certain frustrations that come with that. Um, I imagined her. So the, the setup of my office was I had um, a desk with a with a computer on it and bookshelves and a coat rack. And um, on the other side of the desk, there was this wooden chair. And that was just that if somebody wanted to drop into your office and, and have a cup of tea, that they'd have somewhere to sit. And I, I just looked over at the chair and I thought, OK, right, I'm trying to find Ellen through the through the computer and through the bookshelves. But um, what about if I imagined her sitting on that chair, what difference would that make to what I'm doing? And uh, almost straight away, I thought, yeah, there she is. <laughs> there she is. And um, I, I see what she, of course, it's all, I'm not trying to pretend that, you know, her ghost appeared in my office, but it was, it was in my mind. It was a, it was a projection, but um, it was very easy for me to make that projection. And the fact that I've never seen a photograph of her, I've never heard her physically described meant that I had great freedom in imagining the character of Ellen. So she was sitting there in front of me in her black clothes and her hat. And then it wasn't long before she started talking because I figured that um, a woman who had come from Ireland to America, who had lived the life um, that some of the stories of which I had heard from my own mother, she was going to have plenty to say for herself. And I thought, right, let me just, um, listen and and see what I can imagine hearing, and it happened pretty, pretty easily, pretty pretty smoothly that she found, she found that voice as a character, and uh, she started cohering as a character, and I found that I enjoyed making her a bit prickly. That uh, she wasn't all sweet and, and encouraging like anything, but she was laughing at me. And every time I hit a, a dead end in my research, she'd be sitting there in the chair going, ha, ha, ha. You thought you knew it all and you thought you'd have access to everything. And yeah, look at you. You don't. And uh, I, I, that was fun for me to to have this woman kind of checking my progress all the time. Um, and it, it just seemed like that was a very comfortable voice for her. So once once I had the, the kind of tone of her voice, and I had this image of her, I was able to kind of hit a hit, hit a register for her to speak in. And I didn't try and, and do a lot of research on what a woman coming from South County Sligo would have sounded like in the 1880s or um, what vocabulary she would have had. I didn't do that. I just kind of took a, a more of a novelist approach. I tried to create her as a character and I tried to have her sound kind of consistent sonnet to sound. The sonnets are, are threaded throughout the book. And yeah, they are orderly in the sense that they're 14 lines and they do use some kind of rhyme schemes, but they're not metrical. 
and they're not formal sounding. They're conversational. They're just a way of organizing the material. So she talks, she tells me things, she laughs at me, she scorns me, um, she encourages me slightly. Sometimes she tells me where, where, where I've gotten things wrong. And of course, that's all based on the research that I've done. So she was a very, very strong um, presence while I was writing the book. But um, I don't really I can't really account for it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going down the supernatural route. I'm completely not going down the supernatural route, but I, I can't really account for the way my imagination created this character and the way it just kind of worked. It just for me, it, it uh, if if I hadn't heard that voice, I wouldn't have been able to write the book. Yeah, and the voice, can we read one of them maybe? I noted maybe, I think the one on page 118 that I've got here. Because, I, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's a very good example of that voice. Um, uh, what's amazing, really, like you said, is, is the, the impression reading it. And it's kind of a high wire act, really, that this voice really is coming from outside of the other pages. And it's looking across at them. And you get that from the book also, because the sonnets are usually kind of left side and then, you know, placed against something else. Um, uh, not always, but often there's a kind of document or something, you know, or, or some other kind of text on the other side of the page. Um, anyway, could you read 118 for us? I could, and I'll just set it up by, by saying, Hal, that um, this this is a sonnet in which she um, responds to the fact that um, when when her children were very small, um, like um, a baby and 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 a toddler, and um, she seemed to find herself without a husband, and she decided to bring the children back to her parents in Sligo. So she crossed the Atlantic back the other way left the kids there and went back to New York where she could actually earn some money. And um, I, I know that she, um, at some point, because of um, facts I found in Polk's directory, I know that she was running a little boarding house um, in the, the early teens of the 20th century. So I reckon that what happened was she went back to New York and she worked her socks off and gathered together the money to kind of claw her way up up the ladder a little bit from being a domestic servant, the lowest of the low, to being somebody who ran a little business of her own. And at that point, then she sends for the two kids and I find them on a passenger list coming from Ireland back over to New York. So she gets them back, but they've been gone for 13 years. 12, 13 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, in many ways, um, she is a stranger to them. I doubt they are so much of a, a stra strangers to her, but she must be a stranger. I mean, she was just letters, no phone calls, no Skype. Um, she was just letters. So I imagine that it must have been quite difficult, um, that relationship between the three of them. So this is her talking about or yeah, giving me an account of um, when the children came back. Jimmy came back restless and fidgety. Annie was quieter. I felt I was a stranger to them despite the years of letters. It was Sally they were closest to from living on the farm. Sally who was hugged to death. Sally who knew the name of the dog and the calf at home. Sally, who swore blind they'd love it here once they settled in and made friends, so certain even I believed her or wanted to. I won't deny it hurt, though, after all my years of plans and putting by. 
They got good at helping me run the boarding house. I gave them jobs. Annie's was to wake the lads for mass. Jimmy's to fix any lever, chain or cog that broke. Dada taught him. Annie baked what Mama baked, though it wasn't the same, she said. Thinner. Airy. I said she'd get used to it, as I had. She said, maybe. Great. And Sally, we should say, is the sister, right? So the yeah. auntie. Yes. Jimmy and yes. Annie. Okay, exactly. Yeah. It was fairly typical for Irish emigrants to send back money for um, bringing their brothers and sisters out um, to America. So you often have, have cases, and you can see this in the Irish census records, where people have 12 children um, in one census record, and in the next one, um, they're living on their own or there might be one child left um, because they were, it's a very cruel phrase, but they were kind of breeding for export because that was the only way they could, they could make money. Um, their hands were tied in so many ways as um, small holders paying rents that were inflexible and didn't uh, recognize good harvest or bad harvest or anything of the sort. Um, so sending their children to America to send back money to them to keep everything afloat was an economic avenue that they had um, and they took it. Um, and so that was the case in, in Ellen's family too, where of the 12 children, um, seven of them went to America, um, which, you know, it's, it's the thought of it now is um, it's kind of heartbreaking, really. Yeah. And the book, I mean, I really uh kept kept coming back to this image as i was reading of the kind of just the the kind of power that that sluices out of a country into another country yeah. you know and the kind of but what the book makes clear is that it's also sort of in in an almost re really painstaking way you know that um the energy released from kind of mass emigration then kind of is also in some ways repaid back to the country of origin in in over over an incredibly long expanse of time and I felt like the uh, the book really in a way sort of laid that out for me in a way that I'm, I'm not sure I'd um, really grasp those dynamics before in, in all of it their was, totality and complexity, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a story that's all about money. Um, yeah. Not just Ellen's story, but the story of emigration is a story about money. Well, in the 1880s, I guess in the in the late 1840s, it was a story about staying alive. But at this point, um, we're, we're into a story that's about money. And uh, that's that's a story that we, we, you know, we don't really tell ourselves very often. Um, and the more research I did about the lot of of women um, uh, leaving Ireland and going to America, the more poignant their um, financial situation seemed to be. And I should say that that was one of the the um, kind of unique element, uh, aspects of Irish emigration is that um, a significant number of Irish emigrants were young women traveling alone. Whereas when you look at photographs from it's slightly later, but when you see photographs from Ellis Island, you see family groups with their, you know, on three generations and right. their bags and luggage. And then you see one young woman there on her own with hardly any luggage. And you just look at it and think, well, I think she's probably Irish. Um, Cause that was a, a definite hallmark of Irish immigration. So, they went out there on their own and straight into work. 
And they work bloody hard. And as I've discovered, 15 hour days, six and a half days a week as domestic servants and equivalent in, in mills, which was the other place where, where they, they found employment. Um, and little by little, they kind of clawed their, their way up the economic ladder, not very high, but a little bit, you know, significantly, the second generation of Irish emigrants um, had some kind of education. Like, for example, Ellen's daughter, Annie, went on to become a stenographer. So, you know, that that was kind of not uncommon that they would have these kind of office jobs. So they'd go from physical labor to office jobs, maybe even to school teaching, something like that. Um, although that would probably be more third generation. But we, we tell immigration stories that are about sentiment and um, uh, about music and the songs, which are inherently sentimental. And we, we talk about the artifacts of emigration and we talk about the letters home and uh, we talk about the remittances that were, were sent in in a, in a kind of less considered way because money is not all that sentimental a subject. And we have bought into the sentimental, um, sentimentalized version of the story of emigration. And I, I, I balked slightly at this because I, I was so aware of the economic framework of this story. And that's why I was so keen to, to try and, and rummage around in accounts of the money. And one of the more poignant um, details I found was that um, an Irish emigrant who sent home a letter that didn't have money in it, so the letter could have all kinds of news about um, engagements or marriages or newborn grandchildren or whatever. If that letter didn't have money in it, it was known as an empty letter. Okay. And I thought that was so incredibly poignant. Yeah. Um, and I also thought, as, as you've been suggesting there, well, let's think in terms of what difference did that money make? So I have figures for the amount of money sent back by immigrants. It's not gender specific, but I have figures. What difference did that money make to Ireland? What did they what did people back home use it for? Why were they so dependent on it that they were prepared to to basically um, pack off their their children in order to secure this other source of income? Um, And uh, it was very basic stuff. You know, it was like buying new livestock um, adding on an extra shed. It was paying off the shopkeeper's bills. Um, it might be for a dowry for a younger sister. It was for um, paying for the the, uh, the passage money for uh, other siblings to go out. But it was very basic stuff. Um, and when when you look at what it was spent on, you think, well, actually, how could they have survived without it? If if they needed money in spring to pay the shopkeeper for the animal feed and things like flour and sugar that they had bought all, you know, for the previous three months from the shopkeeper without that money coming from America, they weren't able to pay those bills. So it, it was really important economically. And I thought, OK, we don't often think of, of uh, women of this time as having this deep seated economic role. We think of them as kind of Mother McCree types. We think of them as, you know, um, um, fair maidens and, uh, you know, carrying the, the, the Irish Catholic moral charter to America with them. But we don't think of them as people who really worked. Um, and so Ellen, for me, would have to talk about work. Mm. And it was very important that she would talk about how she spent her days and what money meant to her and, um, and how she imagined the money that was sent home. And how the lack of it in her new life in America might have affected her. Because if you imagine all that money sent back to Ireland, what a difference it would have made to them in their new lives in America if they'd been able to hold on to it. 
Yeah, and just hearing you describe that, it's one of those cases where the sentimentality, as in if you avoid, say, considering the money and the work as the center of this of this story, no, because of sentimentality, let's say, it actually obscures the reality of the sentiments of the of the people involved yeah. in this story, no, and the the real needs, no. Um, and so she does talk about work that is kind of central to the to the to, to her voice. I feel is her is her taking us through um, labor. Absolutely, and I think um, I mean I, I'm very sure that economic employment opportunities for her were extremely limited in Ireland. She she could have got a job as a servant, but it would have paid almost nothing. She could maybe have gotten a job in a shop, but those kind of jobs tended to go to relatives of the shopkeepers. So really, there was no significant employment uh, open to her. The only career path, if you can call it that for her, would have been to marry a farmer and be a farmer's wife. Right. So here she is with money when she gets to New York, she's paid a wage and she has money in her hands. It's probably the first time in her life that she's ever had money of her own. Um, and so I think there was an excitement to that as well, just as there must have been an excitement to all these different foods that she would have been presented with and clothes that she would have been able to afford little by little, you know cheap clothes and and all that but still she would have been able to afford something to dress herself in um by keeping back a a, a, a you know a few a few coins here and there from the remittances sent home and so it, it the money made the life i imagine um both very hard because the labor was so difficult but also it was compensation and if she'd stayed in Ireland, she wouldn't have had the compensation. She would have had the very hard life, but she wouldn't have had the little bit of independence and the little bit of pleasure that money afforded her um, in, in her life in uh, in America. So I, I didn't want it to be all misery. Um, I did want to allow for the fact that it, it, it might also have been a bit exciting. If you're 20 years old and you've been reared... Um, in a in a in in a tiny cottage under a mountain in remote South Sligo and you get on a boat, you get on a train, which you've probably never been on, then you get in a boat and you land in Manhattan. There must have been an element of, oh my God, this is brilliant. <laughs> it's awful in one way and I miss my family, but look, look at all these different people and they look so different and they sound so different and everything is just kind of fresh and new and, you know, it's my job to negotiate it. Um, and I think, you know, the challenge of that must have been exciting. It must have been overpowering for some of the girls. Sure. And, um, I, I know that it was and some of them just didn't thrive at all. But for some of them, it must have been an exciting challenge. And I suspect that Ellen might have fallen into the latter category because I know that she did um, eventually have her own little boarding house. So she did kind of master the system to some yeah, extent. Yeah. 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 Did you enjoy living and work? Have you, you had lived in New York before? No. Had you visited? I oh, I've been there was... as a student. Okay. Um, I'd worked there a couple of summers as a student, but I'd never lived there for a long time. And I did. I did like it very, very much. Um, really liked it and was absolutely thrilled when New York University Press took the book on because that was the proper home right. for the book. Right. And now I feel like Ellen has a has a home in New York still. Um, and I feel that I kind of have a, a bit of a home in New York still. Um, but that time in the Coleman Centre was was um, extraordinarily beneficial to me. Yeah. I just, I want to ask about um, 
uh, a word I kept coming back to and which we might have mentioned already here also, which is responsibility, no? Because what seems really extraordinary about the book is that it's very aware of the writer's responsibilities, but it kind of is also aware of the limits of that kind of thinking. So it doesn't allow that sense of responsibility to crush it. It almost actually takes that responsibility as a kind of freedom in a way, especially in imagining um, in the sonnets themselves and imagining Ellen's voice. Um, uh, was, were there moments when you were working on it where you were worried about the kind of kind of hugeness of some of the history that you're dealing with or or yeah and how did you navigate um uh th through that kind of um that sense of wanting to in a way do right but also also exploring precisely the ways in which you can't because there are imaginative leaps and and the book is is uh is, is about that also it, it it it's a really good question um and um it it was a little tricky so i suppose initially when i conceived the project i kind of thought of myself as being in the book fairly you know a, a fairly complete kind of version of myself um and then it's a, it's a little tricky to describe this in a way but um as the research went on i i began to have this character who was the the researcher and then I began to almost walk a little bit back away from her, okay. so that she, like Ellen, Ellen was in the wooden chair, and then this this um, this other narrative researching voice um, was sitting in in the computer chair, and I I wasn't I wasn't her, so I had to watch what she was doing. I had to be that sort of all seeing eye that could see the successes and also the lacks in the research that she was doing. And I also had to 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 be aware of Ellen and, and um, the greater kind of architectural scheme of the project. But I think just distancing myself from the researcher meant that I I could um, just keep an eye on places where she was claiming to know more than she really had any right to do mm -hmm. or um, where she wasn't acknowledging I suppose, just um, failings in, in the work that she was doing. And it seemed to me that the failings were just so fascinating, just as, you know, flaw in anything is um, sometimes its most attractive quality, like a flaw in a person, as we know, can be a, a, a very uh, dynamic um, uh, uh, plot um, um, device. Um, so, yes, the responsibility to... to it wasn't a responsibility to get it right. It was a responsibility not to get it wrong, mm. and 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 to make myself admit to the fact that if if I didn't know, that that I would say that I didn't know, and that I I had to, um, yes, just watch myself, check myself all the time that I wasn't making claims that I had no right to make as the narrative voice. Mm. There's that amazing bit where she goes to to meet the children at Ellis Island though, after these 12 years. And there's the page about with this, the archivist, I suppose the writer talking about not, not being able to, to go there and I'm waiting for her to then come back. Um, it's kind of theater also. I hadn't really thought about the, this, this kind of, this element of dialogue. Um, but but Ellen really uh, kind of takes over and takes center stage and is speaking 
um, at all of the crucial points in the narrative. No, so it is, it is also building a character and 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 being honest about the ways in which that that character is sort of uh, stitched together from what we know and also what we don't know. No, what we can suppose. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was I was actually that was a difficult bit to write. So I had written a bit where um, she she goes to pick up her children off the boat coming from Ireland. And I had written a bit where um, she she feels things and, and she acts on the feeling and and and, uh, you know, physically she wants to touch them. And maybe physically they're a little bit shy of, of being touched. And I had written it and then I thought, you know, that's a place where the responsibility kicked in, the idea of it. And I just thought, I don't know what she felt. And this this is a very important moment in her life. And uh, I don't actually have a right to, to to write it as though I knew. Um, so I think the only honest thing to do here is to say, I'm going to leave a gap. And we can all imagine what happened in that gap. Um, and I think probably all our imaginings would have some kind of equivalence. But in a way, I'm not needed to tell the story because um, we, we can project. And also, I'm not needed because it would be it would just be wrong for me to claim that depth of that intensity of feeling on her behalf. And it also reads as as you responding to this character that we have, like this that 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 the voice of Ellen in a way wouldn't allow you, which you've created to kind of be present. I I don't know how else to put it, but it's kind of uh, it's responsibility, but also because you're listening to the the intuitions in the book so far about her um, uh, and, and 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 what you what you what you can get down about her and what you can't and um, that's what's really powerful about it i think um yeah yeah Do you know al i've um as you mentioned at the start i've written eight books of poems and i've written a, a few other books of various kinds i had this prose book about art frames and, and middle age and and a few other bits and pieces like that and um you know when you write books of poems and and the books of poems I write are not really like the poems that are in this book they're they're um they're they're different um they're more like they have a, a greater kind of lyric intensity and um like I know lots of people and I'm related to some of them who wouldn't dream of reading a book of poems by me they might try and read one of it and then they'd say oh I don't this isn't for me you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and one of the things that I, I'm really tickled pink about is that quite a number of people like that have said to me oh I enjoyed your book and I, I and in the early days when that happened to me I said oh what did you like about it and they said oh it was just a great story and uh, Ellen Ellen was a good character and I mm-hmm. could hear her voice and I thought I don't even know how all of that I don't I can't explain it I can't explain how I how I did it in a way I just feel like it was partly that I was in the library and it was partly that this character worked for me and it was partly that I already knew how to write lyric passages because I'd been writing all those books of poems for years and it was just like a happy co- coincidence a happy cohering of um of everything I had already learned 
how to do over 30 years of writing. Um, and somehow it just it's it's a good story. And um, I don't think there's anything there that makes people feel like, oh, it's a bit heavy or uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm I've lost the thread of it or I don't believe in the character anymore. It just it um, the, her voice was I think it's down to her voice that the voice of of the character was strong enough that everything else just kind of slotted in behind or fitted in. In a in a way that um was kind of revelatory to me. I don't know if I'll ever be able to, um, to, I know I won't ever be able to write another book like this. But I, I it'll be interesting for me to see what I go on to write at all after this because it's tricky having done this to go back to what I did before. Have you ever? I mean, uh, kind of like we said at the top. No, it's really formally a mix. I I, I uh, is this the first time kind of putting a book together where you've had that that number of varied um that number of varied forms and moving okay yeah yeah i mean the the last poetry book i published had some um prose and poems in it they were kind of answering each other i had a character called poet who wrote poems and i had a character called world who um who spoke um in prose so there was okay. a kind of a two-hander approach to the construction of the book there but no it, it wasn't like this which had several different this one has moving parts more than two um but yeah that one was more more straightforward great and can i ask what you are working on at the moment well i'm i'm trying to write poems um and I'm finding it hard to go back to it. It's just, it's tricky because I mean... There's still Ellen somewhere. There's a chair for Ellen where you are now. Definitely, I have <laughs> discovered that um, it's much easier to invent a ghost than it is to get rid of her afterwards. <laughs> they do tend to linger. Exorcism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you don't want to go back. I mean, obviously, as right. a writer, you're all the time um, moving forward. So if I'm to write poems... Um, having published this Ellen book, what do I do? Do I try and write the way I wrote before I published Ellen? And that just seems like not not useful to me. Um, so I have to work it out. I mean, I did, I have been working on a translation of a ninth century Irish poem called The Hag of Bear. And um, that it's a it's a long it's a you know a substantial piece of writing so that that felt like a way that I could kind of navigate back to something um, that wasn't Ellen that was that was my own voice but um, now that I've done that I'm I'm still faced with the problem of how do I write poems that aren't Ellen, <laughs> Ellen. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I have to, I have to work it out. It's a work in progress. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm writing some essays about poems and uh, doing a few other bits and pieces. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been wonderful to talk to you about, about the book today. And it's really, really good to see you again. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Hal. 